Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Last week, Helen was telling us about the tendency of all political systems to corrupt. And today we're going to talk about a very 21st century form of corruption, tax havens, money laundering, and how the rich get away with it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. This week we have with us Oliver Bullough, who is the author of the new book, I'm going to give it its full title, Moneyland, Why Thieves and Crooks Now Rule the World and How to Take It Back, which is one of those excellent subtitles that tells you what's in the book. It's had some fantastic reviews. Jason Sharman is here. Among his many books is one with an equally good, clear title. The Despot's Guide to Wealth Management. And Helen Thompson is with us too to talk about corruption, among other things. So Moneyland isn't a real place, but it is a real place. So we'll just start by, and Jason can join in too, because Jason knows a lot about what tax havens are actually like when you visit them. Just sketch out for us, Oliver, where it is and how you know when you visited it. Actually, the idea Moneyland came to me sort of whole... It wasn't quite on the toilet, but I was in a toilet in President Viktor Yanukovych's hunting lodge outside Kiev in Ukraine. And what was particularly amazing about this toilet, in fact, there were two of them and they were the same, is that they both had televisions at sitting down height opposite the toilet. And this was, I don't know why, but it was this particular detail that really impressed upon me the fact that this was a guy who really, really stopped at nothing to ensure his own personal comfort. And this was at a time, this is in 2014, when Ukraine was a real mess. I mean, it's a mess now, but it was a real mess back then. You know, the roads were in tatters, the universities were falling apart, the health system was falling apart. And they had a president who had stolen hundreds of millions of dollars from his people and spent some of it, at least, on top-end Western televisions uh, sitting down high in the toilet. And this, I was with a guy called Anton, who was an activist who had the keys to the president's hunting lodge because it was that kind of time after the revolution and and I said how could you not have known this is so egregious what's happening how could you not have known and he sort of exploded at me in a very kind of gentle way but still exploded saying look we couldn't have known just look at how this place was owned and if you looked at the ownership of the hunting lodge it was owned by a Ukrainian company that was owned by a British company that was owned by another British company that was owned by a foundation in Liechtenstein and it was actually impossible to figure out who owned it. So Moneyland is not the Ukrainian hunting lodge. Moneyland starts there, but it takes you somewhere Moneyland else. is the place where this hunting lodge was owned, which is nowhere. And the astonishing thing is, if you look at the amount of assets of property, financial wealth, which is held nowhere, like the hunting lodge was, it's sort of between 8 and 10%, according to Gabriel Zuckman, who's, who's looked at these things from the University of California, between 8 and 10% of all the assets in the world. And that makes it, I think, the third biggest economy in the world after America and China. And if you start looking at offshore, not as a facility or not as a structure, but as a place that, that controls things and influences things in its own interests in the way that any country does, it becomes a very alarming 
prospect. So I invented Moneyland in the toilet as this way of explaining why it was impossible for them to know what, what their president had owned. And then I realized it sort of it kind of explains everything. If you look at the way that the rich and the powerful from all over the world behave, whether that's people investing money in super PACs in America, or whether that's Nigerian governors hiding their property in West London, owned by shell companies in the British Virgin Islands, then you realize that, yeah, there's a third country, a third powerful super economy in the world, and it's not the EU, and it's not any of the BRICS, it's Moneyland. And that's what the book's about. And Jason, when you when you hear the phrase Moneyland, where do you, because you know these places quite well, give us some of the other places that are part of this mythical superpower. Well, I think as Oliver says, it's Moneyland is sort of nowhere in many places. And often there's the source of where the money comes from is taken from, in this case, Ukraine, to the places where it ends up. But it's also the way stations where it transits through. And some of those are very strange places indeed. Oliver talks about some of those in his book. In the South Pacific and some of the islands there, as close to being nowhere as you can be while actually being somewhere. And I remember going to Nauru, a very, very small place measuring maybe two miles by three miles in the South Pacific, a sovereign country, and seeing the small shed where you had hundreds and hundreds of shell banks registered, i.e. banks that ostensibly owned hundreds of millions of dollars, but whose only presence was this small series of plastic plaques on a wall of a pretty decrepit shed and the one sort of bored-looking individual supposedly looking after them. So it's really the mismatch of incredible sums of wealth and really fleeting, if any, tangible signs of that wealth. And yet, would it be fair to say that the capital of Moneyland is the City of London. Moneyland was invented by the City of London. There's this this very famous line from Dean Acheson, in fact, pretty much the only thing I know about Dean Acheson, apart from he used to be Secretary of State, which is Britain has lost an empire, is yet to find a role. And what's particularly amusing and ironic about this is he said that at a speech at West Point in December 1962. At that precise time, the City of London, a group of bankers from Warburgs, was inventing the Eurobond, the first essentially retail offshore instrument, which is what broke the post-war capital controls of the Bretton Woods system, which set capital free and made it very, very profitable, not only what to dodge taxes or, or to be a kleptocrat. Who wants to take on this task in three sentences to explain how the Eurobond works? Well, I mean, the Eurobond is... You <laughs> You've know, written the, the book I mean, most recently. <laughs> but the, I mean, the Eurobond was essentially took money from Switzerland, packaged it up in London, and lent it out to people anywhere, in this case, people in Italy, but they didn't have to be, they could be anywhere. But the point was, at the time, it was very, very hard to move money from one country to another. It was supposed to be essentially impossible to do this, to have this retail product that united buyers and organisers and sellers in lots and lots of different countries. And yet Warburg's managed to find this very clever way of, of, it's a sort of, I call it jurisdictional twister, of basically pointing different aspects of the bond in different jurisdictions. It was Luxembourg and Holland and Switzerland, the UK, various other places. So it's sort of money land because it wasn't anywhere. It was everywhere and nowhere. Can I just add one point on that? I think the crucial thing, though, in terms of the way it worked in relation to Bretton Woods was there were euro dollars to begin with. Basically, they were dollars that were issued outside the United States, actually effectively without the Federal Reserve Board having any knowledge of what was going on. So the whole principle of Bretton Woods, which was that every dollar was backed by gold, completely goes out the window once you have euro dollars because you have these dollars floating around outside the United States that aren't backed by gold. And is what then happens that, I mean, you talk about this in your book, that the American banks, the Wall Street banks, that are kind of chafing under the restrictions of the Bretton Woods arrangement, see the city of London as their 
way out it's their escape route they can do stuff with dollars that they can't do back in the this sort of the takeover of the city of london by american banks is often seen as a kind of almost a loss of british sovereignty a loss of british control but it actually you can see it the other way around because essentially their banks took over the city of london but our authorities took over regulating their banks or not regulating their banks so it's a it's a concurrent loss of sovereignty on both sides of the atlantic you had this pooling of anglo-american financial systems into this one overarching system that wasn't really regulated anywhere, which was offshore. And euro dollars were an instrument used by banks to lend to each other. Then the joy of euro bonds is that sort of pleasure of offshore is extended to the individual, that rich individuals with their money in Switzerland or Luxembourg or wherever could suddenly access this very profitable money-making machine. And, and, it, and I mean, that's what sort of broke free and it allowed people like Sanio Batcher to suddenly hide all this money and, and steal as much money as they wanted. I think there is a distinction to be drawn between the way it works in terms of, if you like, offshore banking and the way it works in terms of like offshore tax havens. And I think in terms of the way it works in offshore banking in the 50s and into the, the 60s, it does actually have some rationale in relation to trade because one of the other contradictions of the bread and wood system was is that all these dollars had to be backed by gold and the United States was supposed to have the world's reserve currency on which a lot of trade was going to be conducted, not least the purchase of oil. And at a certain point, there wasn't going to be enough gold for all the dollars that were required to keep international trade functioning. So these offshore euro dollars actually were making some kind of positive contribution to facilitating international trade. But then at the same time, they started to develop both as something that the banks used in order to engage in all kinds of activities that they hadn't previously engaged in and weren't able to get engaged in new ways of making money and at the same time they open up possibilities for tax for basically hiding money for hiding money yeah so you have something that kind of makes some kind of structural sense within Bretton Woods it's problematic at the same time for Bretton Woods it's eventually going to contribute to its destruction and then it has all these other consequences that bring all these other problems and all these opportunities for crime essentially into play and we're going to bring this story up to the present soon but in that sequence of Bretton Woods breaks down and as you say you could frame it that these banks then come under the jurisdiction of the British authorities if the British authorities choose to use that jurisdiction and on the whole they don't. Mm, uh, yeah. So in that story are there kind of points along the way where there were opportunities for this to come out differently? Were there moments where something for want of a better phrase could have been done that wasn't done? It would have been down to the Bank of England in sort of 1962 to 3 to say actually... Okay, so that would have stopped at the beginning. But the problem is that once one jurisdiction allows offshore, so that essentially declines to regulate something, then everyone kind of had to follow suit because all the business immediately goes to the jurisdiction that allows what's happening. So you end up with this ratchet, which always moves in the same direction. You know, America had to eventually deregulate in order to catch up with London, and then everyone else had to deregulate to catch up with America. So you end up with this constant loosening of the of the regulations in order to try and attract the capital that's flowing to the least regulated jurisdiction. Maybe I'm being stupid, maybe one of you can answer this, but if the banks open off these sort of offshoots in the city of London... But if the city of London had clamped down, the banks aren't going to just move around the world looking for... I mean, is it that easy for... I think the player that could have stopped things or things could have possibly turned out differently is the Federal Reserve Board. It isn't really what was going on in London because the, basically the Federal Reserve Board were allowing all these dollars to be created offshore. And to begin with, they don't even understand that it's happening. So I think it's something like 1962, right about the time this has been going some time, or at least some years, before there's even the word Eurodollar appears in the Federal Reserve Board minutes. By the end of the 60s, they're kind of obsessed with it, and they realise it's a huge problem for them in terms of making Bretton Woods work, but they just don't understand what to do about it. Because 
I mean, the whole concept of like how the banking system is working around this is just, in some sense, mind-boggling from their point of view. And I think, in some sense, you can say that that problem continues all the way for the Federal Reserve Board until 2008. Now, if they got to grips with the offshore banking side of it, there may have been scope for getting to grips with the other sides of it as well, but that doesn't necessarily follow. I mean, there is this very lovely irony at the beginning of the euro-dollar market that the first dollars supposedly originated from the Soviet Union, which was very reluctant to bank in the US because it didn't want its dollars confiscated. So it earned money from selling oil, banked them in London and Paris, and those were then packaged up by the Midland and used for trade financing. And so you have this sort of strange alliance between the City of London and the Soviet Union against who exactly is not really sure, but what it did do was essentially break the, the straitjacket of Bretton Woods and set some money free. It's- Jason, do, do you think that there are points along the way that there were missed opportunities? There's a sense of inevitability about this. It's sort of you start the ball rolling with euro dollars and euro bonds and you end up in 2018 with 10% of the world's wealth having disappeared. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to distinguish between different bits of offshore, that some parts of offshore were created by banks which had earned the money legitimately looking to escape regulations in a way that was not illegal, if you'll pardon the double negative, whereas a lot of the money that's now hidden offshore that Oliver referenced earlier is by no means from legitimate sources. And there, rather than seeking non-regulated spaces, this is money that's of criminal origins. These are the crooks in the the subtitle of the book. Yeah, so again, there are different origin stories. Are we looking for US bankers who are looking to step outside of the US regulatory sphere or out-and-out crooks like despots in Ukraine or the Middle East or wherever else who might be out there? The argument I make is that essentially these instruments were invented for tax evasion purposes. And you have to remember in in the 60s and the early 70s in Britain, the marginal tax rate hit 97%. It's not surprising people were really looking for ways to avoid that tax. I mean, we all know Taxman by the Beatles, the taxman got 19 shillings for every one George Harrison got to keep it. The tax rate was... Mr. Wilson, Mr. Heath. Yeah, it was very, very high. And so there was a significant market for anyone who could invent a tax dodging instrument. But the problem is the instrument they invented wasn't just useful for dodging taxes, it was useful for avoiding scrutiny of any kind. So those same instruments then become useful for the Marcoses, the Abachers, the sort of kleptocrats from all over the world. And then essentially, eventually, the Putins, the Nazarbayevs in, in, in Kazakhstan, the Aliyevs in Azerbaijan, it becomes a, a network that's available to anyone who wants to evade scrutiny. So it's sort of originally naughty money, but then it becomes evil money. And in a way, the irony of it is not tax evasion, it becomes the vehicle for the rulers of states, often where there is very little or no tax being paid, but who want to essentially strip those states of their assets and move it into their personal domain. So the examples you were giving, I mean, these are the people, as it were, whose job is meant to be collecting taxes. They've given up on that. What they're doing is asset stripping their own countries. In the memoir of the man who invented the Eurobond, a banker called Ian Fraser, a really interesting guy, and a great memoir, he says that the money that paid for the first issue of Eurobonds was 80% what he called Belgian dentists, ordinary European tax evaders and 20% fallen South American dictators. So that alliance between the naughty money and the evil money was baked in at the very beginning. It's everyone who was evading scrutiny, whoever they were. It's a totally morals-free instrument. Just, if you want to evade scrutiny, this is what you want. I love the thought that the Belgian dentists and the South American dictators, that's the alliance you need to watch out for. It's the alliance that broke the world. So let's bring it up to date. So one question I wanted to ask, and you, you talk about this a bit in the book, and various people quote it, for instance, people who talk about... The citizenship, which becomes, you know, for some of these countries where you can avoid or evade taxes, 
become a citizen of these countries used to be much harder to get a kind of physical passport and so on. And the digital revolution has made some things much easier. Someone in your book sort of says, imagine trying to control this in a world where at the click of a button you can change nationality. So how much has this been turbocharged by the information revolution? I tend to be a bit of a sceptic about the information revolution there. I mean, in one sense, if you think 100 years ago, you didn't need a passport to travel and reside places. So to that extent, technology has actually reduced mobility rather than enhancing it. And in some ways, the investigation of these things is rendered much easier by the fact of information technology. If you think about leaks like the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers, if that was all in hard copy paper, you would have need you know, huge amounts of lorry loads to get this stuff out instead of just whatever it was, a stick drive or a portable hard drive or so on. So I think the technological advances cut both ways. And by no means is it just a story of technology driving globalization, which makes life easier for the sort of crooks that uh, Oliver's talking about. Is it a kind of, as in so many of these things, an arms race that the people trying to detect it and the people trying to avoid being detected are both using the technology and trying to stay one step ahead of the other? I think if only, I think that gives too much credit for the effectiveness of the system we have to stop these things. We're not even catching the stupid low-tech criminals. So it's not like we're being outwitted by criminal masterminds and the sorts of financial geniuses that set up these products. If you're a drug dealer and you have a bag of cash, you can probably take it to a bank and deposit it and launder it in there without getting into trouble. You don't need cryptocurrency. You don't even need an internet connection. Even the basic sort of financial crime, we don't do a very good job of catching. I was talking to a guy called John Tobin, who's an, an investigator in Florida, so which is very much on the front line of sort of kleptocratic cash from Venezuela and Brazil and you know, the countries of South America, and enthusiastically welcomes them, but there are federal agents who try and reject it. The big problem for him is that 20 years ago, if you wanted to set up a shell company in, say, the South Pacific, you kind of had to get somewhere near the South Pacific to do it. You didn't necessarily have to go to Nauru, but you probably had to be in New Zealand. Now you can do it over the internet from, from Miami in half an hour. But he still has to go to Nauru to figure this stuff out. The internet has leveled that. It's made it much easier to sell the enabling products, the shell companies from the Marshall Islands, Nevis, wherever, that makes it difficult to crack these crimes. But the law enforcement has remained analogue. You still have to go through the same procedures they had to go through 20 years ago to get the information out of Nauru or wherever. I mean, no offence to Nauru, just an example. And that is the real problem for me, is that the, the money is increasingly borderless. Money flows where it wants and ever more borderless. But the laws remain stuck at national borders. You cannot go from Florida to without some kind of permission to Nevis to get the information out of Nevis. But the money just goes back and forth in an afternoon. And that's the problem is for governments is, is this tension between sovereignty and nationally defined laws and totally transnational money. I kind of buy half of that. But I think we also shouldn't get carried away with some idea that this kind of money laundering crime and moving money in these illicit ways suddenly appears in the 1950s. I mean, if you go back to like the 1930s and the Second World War and the ways in which the Nazis were able to sell their looted gold a good part through the Bank for International Settlements and there was just kind of like they sat in their offices in Switzerland and moved things around between accounts, it was pretty easy to do. So it doesn't require technology to make it possible to take illegally gained money and move it, including to extraordinarily awful regimes. Of course, that's right. But if you stole, say, gold and sold it in Switzerland in the 1930s, your money was still in Switzerland. Whereas now, because of the way that the internet or before that telex had enabled finance, you can steal it 
launder it in Switzerland, spend it in New York in the same day. You, know, you can that, do the spending bit, I agree, differently. I mean, but I still, not all that Nazi money stayed in Switzerland. But, but that's the, the joy of Moneyland, the way that technology has enabled this, is the stealing it, the hiding it, and the spending it have become very, very simple. If you look at whole chunks of sort of West London, we, we run these things called kleptocracy tours where we put people in buses and drive them around West London, point out houses, you know, that belongs to a Ukrainian oligarch, that's the son-in-law of the president of Kazakhstan, that's the Russian deputy prime minister, that's the Bahraini royal family, that's the son of the former president of Egypt. You know, this stuff... It's hiding in plain sight, but it's incredibly difficult, as Jason said, for law enforcement to do anything about this because we're still stuck in this age when you have to try and get information out of the Marshall Islands. You know, no one's ever broken a Marshall Islands trust. It can't really be done. So what do you do? And that's the problem in that it's so easy to hide money. Once it's hidden, it's very enjoyable to spend it. So given that there aren't more wicked people in the world than there used to be, I assume, and as you said, you know, historically there have been these kinds of patterns of behaviour and these forms of evasion and so on, the thing that there is more of now is what, just the range of opportunity? That's the space that's opened up. It's a crime of opportunity. I think people steal stuff if they can get away with stealing stuff. I mean, I hope I wouldn't, but it's difficult to say if you suddenly have the opportunity to loot $100 million from the state treasury and you are basically got a 99.999% chance of getting away with it. Mm, I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't be all that moral. I mean, it's a lot of money, right? What if it's a billion? I mean, that's the problem. If you look at how crude some of these crimes are, and how easy it was to steal money from, say, the Nigerian Central Bank. They just write a letter, give me $30 million, and took it away in a truck. It's that simple. Would I be able to resist that if that meant I could buy a nice house in West London and keep it forever? I'm not sure I would. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the, the last bit of your subtitle is how to take it back. So let's just talk about what we could do. I want to ask a specific question and a more general question. If part of this is about the city, the city of London and British authorities and how they behave, is Brexit likely to make a difference? There is one version of Brexit, which is it's going to turn us into the ultimate offshore island. That's the only way we'll survive. The other version of Brexit is that we will take back control. And presumably that means we could take back control of some of this too, that British sovereign authorities might be feel more empowered to do something about this. I'm sure there are other options, including that Brexit doesn't happen. But I mean, there's that Gandhi line, isn't there? But you know, what do you think about British enforcement of money laundering? You know, it would be a good idea. It, you know, we are so far away from being anywhere near satisfactory at the moment. I mean, you know, there was this massive scandal in Denmark last week, Danske Bank, Estonian branch laundered 200 billion euros which is an almost unimaginable amount of money. The biggest group of account holders were British shell companies, LLPs. There hasn't been a response to that from the government as far as I know. It's astonishing. We are way worse than the British Virgin Islands in that regard. You know, British Virgin Islands were in third place. We were first. You know, We are so far behind achieving anything that, to be honest, Brexit it doesn't, it's sort of irrelevant, I think. I mean, it's, the EU isn't stopping us from doing anything now in terms of fighting money laundering because we're not. And the 
EU, if we left it, it wouldn't help us fight money laundering. I mean, if the EU has done good stuff, its anti-money laundering directives are good. But it's all about enforcement, and we're just not enforcing the laws. So are you saying that, as it were, the fear that we'll become the bargain basement offshore, that's not a real fear because we're there already? Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> so what, why? What are the incentives at work here? Are we just in too deep? It's not great for the London... I'm sort of struggling. It's not great for the London property market. It's not... We don't benefit from these Kazakh but, but, playboys but it's buying this, houses. It's this line about Britain losing an empire and finding a role. We found a role. Well, we did. This is Yes, we did as a I country. Mean, this, the city we? of London's role was being the best international financial centre. And this was how we stole Wall Street's business, was by being cheaper and less well-regulated than them. We were very good at it. And how do you reverse that? 50 years of progress in that direction. Jason, give us an Australian view of Britain's uh, incentives here. No, I think I really agree with what Oliver said. I think that there's a large class of intermediaries in Britain, but not just in Britain, who do handsomely out of this trade, as Oliver talks about in the book of, you know, the people of Ukraine or whatever the victim country is may suffer and the money may briefly pass through places like British Virgin Islands or Mauritius or Nauru, but the place that it comes to rest is disproportionately London, and it makes a big positive difference for a certain class of intermediaries, for lawyers, for accountants, for investment managers, for uh, for real estate agents. Members of the House of Lords. I mean, I would say that on the city, that is part of the explanation why London's a premier international financial centre in the world. It's not the only explanation why London's a premier international financial centre in the world. It does do certain things, legal things, significantly better than others do. It has a time zone advantage. It has English common, language. It has common law as yeah. the English language. You know, there is more to the city's Yeah, it's, it's a, a little bit that compliment the vice pays to virtue. Criminals <laughs> like property rights. Once they've stolen mm-hmm. things, they don't like having their stuff stolen. They prefer efficient financial centres to inefficient. They speak English too. Yeah. But I should say, though, as well, though, is if you look at our politics, we haven't had a massive scandal around the corruption of politicians and big businesses in terms of using offshore accounts. And I'm thinking as the two European cases of the German case with coal, you know, when the brought coal down is all about use of offshore accounts, basically to fund the slush fund, which the Christian Democrats ran for a very long time. In the French case, Elf Aquitaine, the state-owned oil company, which is probably the biggest corporate scandal in post-war European history, I would say. I mean, it's, I mean, and literally, they were running, you know, a foreign policy for France in parts of Africa. They were paying off mistresses of various French politicians. They were being used to buy up dilapidated oil companies in eastern Germany to help coal out, probably give donations to help coal win elections in 1994. I mean, there's a lot of lot of stuff there. Now, I'm not saying there is nothing like that in British politics, but we haven't had a huge scandal like those two scandals represent for France and Germany in terms of the way offshore is fed back into our politics. So if Brexit won't change it, could a different government change it? Could a Corbyn government change it? Yeah, I mean, they could do. And to be fair, the Labour Party has got some Annalise Dodds, who's in their shadow treasury team, has come up with some really good ideas for stuff that would get us from sort of 5% to 10% in terms of what we should be doing. For example, when a British company has registered checking the information that's provided, that's one policy they've suggested. That doesn't happen at the moment. You just can create a company. And I mean, there's one very amusing one with a guy. The directors are Leonardo DiCaprio, Daniel, what's his name, James Bond, what's his surname? What's his name? Craig. Daniel Craig and Robbie Williams. I'm, they're not actually directors, but he's just put just them down. Just to be clear about yeah, that. Yeah, but he's just put them down there and no one checks. It's, you know, it's, it's funny. There's another one with Stalin, another one with Mubarak and Osama bin Laden. You can just chuck these things into a company's house. It's cost £13 for a laugh. It's an absolute farce. 
So if a Labour Corbyn government came in, hopefully they would change that. That would be good. But it still would still be a long way behind where we should be. But I'd just like to say, I mean, in defence of Britain, though it's not a very good defence, America is actually just as bad. You know, I had this amazing encounter with a company formation agent about 40 miles east of Reno in Nevada, and he creates companies. And I said to him, well, do you check if, if bona fides are the people creating your companies for you? And he said, no. I mean, if they told me they were from the mafia, I probably wouldn't do it. But people don't say that. He goes, there's not a lot of money in asking questions. And this is in, in America. And I mean, I've spoken to people in the FBI who say that they cannot find out who owns a company in Delaware. It's not just I can't find out or we can't find out. The FBI can't find out. America is, is up to its knees in this stuff as well. So if London has a rival in terms of sort of the global magnet for kleptocratic cash, it's New York. And if it's not New York, it's Miami or Los Angeles. So, you know, we are, we're in good company. And to go back to the point Jason made, and it's kind of, you flag it up at the start of your book and you come back to it at the end, that fundamental mismatch between how people in different parts of the world experience this phenomenon. So if you're in the Ukraine, someone's stolen all your money and built gold toilets with TVs at toilet height, and the money's then come out and wound up some of it in the UK and some of it then spread to other places. The pain is felt in one place, and that pain is not even known about or understood in the place that has the jurisdiction and the control. Isn't that still, I mean, it's the basic tension of globalization at some level. Yeah. The people that are suffering in one place and their suffering is not felt in the place where something could be done about it. It's right. I mean, it, what's interesting is the poisoning of Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury has focused minds in Whitehall in a way that I've never seen them focus before. Politicians are talking about this issue because I think they have finally understood that Putin and the greater Putin, the sort of clan around Putin, are the masters of the offshore game. They've sort of essentially weaponized offshore. It's another Gabriel Zutman statistic that 52% of all Russian household wealth is offshore, more than half the money in the country. And the Russian elite is the, are the masters of the offshore game, and, and we are intensely vulnerable to pressure because of that. So I think that finally the, the Salisbury attack has focused minds in a way that they should have been focused long ago, and I sincerely hope that that leads to something sensible sort of emerging from politics this this autumn because you know we're very late and we should have done something a long time ago but that in itself is amazing that it takes the poisoning of an ex-spy to focus people's attention on this yeah i mean let's face it we had a poisoning of, a, of an ex-spy 10 years ago with polonium 210 and apparently that's fine it took the poisoning of a second one with another exotic russian-made poison for it to finally focus so you have attention. to poison two spies it could have become clear pretty quickly once after putin came to power that all the oligarchs came, to, all the oligarchs who he fell out with, I should say, came to London, and the, some said the factional Russian civil war took place in the city of. I, when I say the city of London, I mean London as a city, not the financial centre of London. The other thing that's going on here, as you said, it's kind of reputation laundering too. I mean, Abramovich is the classic case. He, you, you buy Chelsea Football Club, and what you're doing is laundering your reputation. Though his reputation was impeccable to begin with, I say. He's now trying and, to sell and, it. and I have long maintained. <laughs> Okay, now I feel nervous. I said something that I shouldn't. Uh, but I, I actually can't remember the sequence. At what point recently did the British government deny Abramovich his visa? Was that post-Skripal? We, it, it, yeah, it was. Though. We're not okay, actually, so that was part we of We don't actually know that it, it, exactly what happened. And then are we allowed to say anything but we do about know, this? But we subject? do know that he's gone and got an Israeli passport applied for him, which means he no longer needs to get a visa because Israelis can come here without And he's now visa. trying to sell Chelsea, but he wants three billion and nobody wants to pay the idea that there is a hostile environment for wealthy Russians in London is a sort of widely trailed policy in the pages of the Telegraph, and I would love it to be true. But 
you know, it's a sort of one in, one out for legal purposes. I'm not going to mention them, but I, you know, Abramovich goes to Israel. Far more objectionable people have come the other way over the same period. So it's, you know, it's it's more of a press release than a policy, put it that way. Jason, if you could wave your magic wand and get the British or the American government to do one thing that it's not currently doing, what would it be in this space, this money land space? I think for tracking down the outright criminal money and proceeds of corruption and so on, would be, frankly, harking back to the days of the Old West and engaging kind of bounty hunter outfits of people who would be able to track this money and seize it using civil law remedies that are already available and keep some portion of the funds they recover, as has been the case in one of the examples that Oliver mentions of the former Nigerian dictator, Sani Abacha. I think that there's a limit to what states are prepared to do for diplomatic reasons and can do for reasons of lack of resources or austerity. So just tell us a bit about the Abacha case, what actually happened there? So a dictator of Nigeria until 1998, as Oliver mentions, uh, stole lots of money through such subtle intricacies as backing up a truck to the central bank and loading it full of cash and then wiring it to places. And then dying while cavorting with two prostitutes and thereby afterwards a long search for his money. And one of the ways that the biggest chunk of it was found was a certain enterprising Swiss lawyer and the Nigerian government said to him, go look for this money. We know it's out there in money land somewhere. We're not sure where. We're not going to pay you anything. If you recover the money, you get to keep $29 million of it. If you don't recover anything, you don't get any money. And as it turned out, he this found enterprising <laughs> lawyer found the money. And there's $29 million, which as a result, he found about $600 million. So in some sense, Nigeria got whatever it is, $571 million. And the enterprising Swiss lawyer got $29 million. That recovery effort is, is, a, is one of the best ones there's been. But you know, asset recovery remains around sort of 25 cents for every $1,000 that's been stolen over the last 20 odd years. It's still essentially a, a one-way bet if you steal a lot of money from a from a poor country and stash it in a rich one. So for my mind, I'm wave my magic wand at Britain and America. I want Britain to have American enforcement and I want America to have British transparency. And if we could combine the two, then you would end up with something quite extraordinary. Because American enforcement is great, but they can't really do anything because they can't tell what's going on. And British transparency is great, but you can't do anything about it because we don't give any money to the NCA or the City of London Police or the Serious Fraud Office. So combine the two and actually you'd end up making a big difference. So can I read you something that John Lanchester wrote in the London Review of Books a couple of months ago in a very interesting piece? We'll tweet the link to it about the aftermath of 2008. But he ends by making the similar point that you've been making, drawing on some of the same statistics, um, including Zuckman, about the money having gone missing. And he says, when it comes to the question of paying their taxes, the rich have seceded from the rest of humanity. Then he says, a crackdown on international evasion is difficult because it requires international coordination. But common sense tells us this would be by no means impossible. Effective legal instruments to prevent offshore tax evasion are incredibly simple and could be enacted overnight, as the US has shown with its crackdown on oligarchs linked to Putin's regime. All you have to do is make it illegal for banks to enact transactions with territories that don't comply with rules on tax transparency. That closes them down instantly. Then you have a transparent register of assets, a crackdown on trust structures, which incidentally can't be set up in France and the French economy functions fine without them, and job done. <laughs> he then says politically it's hard, but it's not it's, impossible. It, br- brilliant. I mean, it involves diplomatically going to war with the United States. 
but I mean, other than that, it's it's a great idea. I mean, no, I, I think it would be lovely. And, and while I'm dreaming, I'd also like a pony. But it's not going to happen. The problem is, I mean, after the financial crisis, we the world came up with two solutions to the problem of tax evasion. One was in America, which was FATCA, the Foreign Accounts Tax Compliance Act. And the other was in the rest of the world, the Common Reporting Standard, which both kind of do the same thing. You have to tell the, the foreign tax authority of assets held in your country. But the problem is the two systems don't talk to each other. So inevitably, where two systems don't talk to each other, there's a loophole. And in this case, it's created an amazing loophole that has... I mean, the, the South Dakotan trust industry has risen from 40 billion US to 260 billion US over that period, basically because of this loophole. Now, you're going to somehow persuade the South Dakotan administration that they need to get rid of that industry. There's nothing in South Dakota. This is brilliant for them. The problem is everyone always benefits from loopholes. And somehow imposing that kind of global system on a jurisdiction that doesn't want it isn't possible without defeating it, which isn't going to happen. So, so I mean, to be fair, John Lancaster says politically hard, but you say politically impossible. Politically impossible without involving the United States. And the United States is not very good at imposing the federal will on, on states, obviously. So places like Nevada, Wyoming, South Dakota, which are doing very, very, very well out of the post-financial crisis tax haven industry. You know, how do you persuade them to start leaving aside Delaware? How do you persuade them to stop doing it? Yeah, I mean, the United States is very good at shutting other states out of its banking system when it wants to. It's yeah. proven that over any number of issues, and it's the basis of the whole Iran sanctions thing arises from that. But for the United States to deal with its own issues in this respect is a whole other matter, and there's no reason. I don't think this would make any difference who was in the White House as to why that they're going to do that, not least because, as Oliver said, I mean, there's some individual states in the United States, not just South Dakota, Delaware, that you mentioned you know earlier, where this is just like central, essentially, to the business model of the state. I mean, what would the Delaware economy be without this? I mean, I had there was a, a congressman in the, in the local House of Representatives in Nevada who said to me, they were chatting, about foreign competitors to Nevada for the trust industry. He said, well, you can put your money in Cyprus. And they laughed and said, yeah, but if it's in Cyprus, it's it's not safe from the Department of Treasury, but it is here. You're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, how do you get past that? I mean, I end the book, well, the second last chapter is called Tax Haven USA. And it is how this mismatch between the CRS and FATCA has created this astonishing tax haven industry in places like Wyoming and South Dakota and, and Nevada that didn't used to have this industry. And they absolutely love it. For them, these are high-value, high-tax-paying jobs in places that really need the revenue. And how do you persuade these states to stop you know, accepting the money? It's far harder to, to persuade them to do it than to persuade someone like Nevis, because Nevis or Nauru, you can just bully into doing what you like, really, if you want. But you can't bully Nevada. So one last question is a big question, and it touches on what Helen was saying before about, so we haven't had the scandal that maybe would bring this to the forefront of our political consciousness. But we have had a crisis, the crisis that we keep coming back to, the 2008 crisis, which had many causes. But one cause in conventional accounts, Helen may tell me this is wrong, is that you know, money land is also shadow land. It's kind of, it's dark, this money. What did you say, eight, between 8 and 9% of the world's total wealth is missing, as John Lanchester says, it's just not on the balance sheets, which makes a very interconnected, very fast moving, very precariously poised global economy, I would assume, much harder to control, as far as anyone can control it, but also much, much more vulnerable to systemic crises, that you know, things that can happen in the dark might trigger things that come into the light. So two parts to this question, are we more at risk of another massive crash because of this? But also, is, is there some financial event, not some scandal, but some crisis that would make people think this is intolerable? I just think on the first, on the question of the 2008 crash, I do think that 
offshore banking is actually quite an important part of the story of 2007, 2008, and that this essentially offshore dollar credit creation that went on basically international banking was so tied up with that that when that stopped working as it did in the august of 2007 that we end up with a financial crisis and but i do think on that side that you could then say well it broke down offshore dollar credit creation broke down in 2007 it has never recovered and that the fed in some sense then took over with dollar credit creation and that's kind of like what qe has been about at the global level so on that side of it i'd say we move into a different potential crisis because we still haven't really dealt with what happened in 2007 2008 we've just had the fed and the other central banks try and mop it up in this way that's had all kinds of unintended consequences including it must be said giving more opportunities for extremely rich people to own assets that are now worth even more than they were and spend their money in london and other internationalized cities so in some sense, we're still living with the first version of the crisis, I guess. Is what I was going to say, I've learned enough from you to know that bringing it into the light by making it QE doesn't mean that we control it any more than when it was in the dark. No, it or doesn't. Or at mean, least it, control it, the consequences of what might happen We don't next. control the... Co- I mean, it's very controlled because the Fed is making deliberate decisions about it. And now, before, the Fed didn't even But we're not in Kansas but, anymore. No, but the consequences of it are completely unknown. That's what I'm saying. And that's the difference. Is I don't think, as far as I can understand these things, is the Fed understood what was going on with offshore banking in 2007. I'm not entirely sure it is understood it even retrospectively, but it has put something in place of it. The problem for that is even if it understands the mechanisms by which it does QE or did QE because it stopped, it does not understand what the consequences of what it has done. And that is where the great unknown is. Jason, do you think we're more vulnerable to the big one, as it were, because so much money is not, we don't know where it is? I think we are more vulnerable to uh, the financial crisis, but for me that doesn't really have much to do with offshore unless offshore becomes an infinitely elastic term for any form of financing that you disapprove of. I think that, I mean, both for the last crash and possibly for the one to come, I mean, it wasn't really a problem of secret money stashed in places where people couldn't see it. I think there was a problem of ignorance and people not understanding the various obligations and liabilities they'd taken on. But for me, that's not quite the same thing as offshore or arguably is the sort of money land that we've been talking about. I mean, to my mind, the threat is the fact that this dark money, the 10% of the global economy, which is out there somewhere, is a bit like a sort of malevolent poltergeist. We can't see it and we can't touch it, but it can see us and it can touch us. There's this great line in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which I'm sure you've all read intensely, when Mr. Weasley scolds his daughter Ginny at the end because she's been possessed by a diary which was sort of inhabited by the spirit of Lord Voldemort. And she says, how many times do I have to tell you, never trust anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain? And that's the thing about dark money, this offshore money, is is it's acting, it's influencing our politics, it's buying assets, it's buying houses, it's paying for the media, it's paying for, you know, political campaigns, but we can't see where it keeps its brain. And I think this is a problem because obviously the owners of dark money are many and they are various and they are all over the world, but they all have one interest in common, which is they don't want to be exposed because if they get exposed, they might have their money taken away from them. And that is a threat to democracy because the core function of a democratic government is to tax its citizens. And if the democratic government can't tax its citizens, then is it a democratic government anymore? So I do think that this dark money is a threat to democracy. I think it's a, a growing threat to democracy. And I think that it will be never easier to do something about it than it is right now, because the amount of money 
is growing and the more money there is the bigger a threat this malevolent poltergeist is i was really struck by that harry potter line in your book and it made me think but one of the things it made me think is you can apply that to lots of things including democracies i mean that's things that can think for themselves but you can't see their brain the british government facebook I mean, actually, we live in a world which is made up of these monsters. Absolutely. That's our world. I mean, I think this so is... So some of it is dark and some of it, like we were saying, is in the light. The what... Federal Reserve, it can think for itself. Can you see its brain? Yes, you can, because you can see its, its decision-making process. It, you know, there is a transparency inherent in that. And I think this is what was so brilliant about the Bretton Woods agreement that, that Harry Dexter White and John Maynard Keynes came up with, in that they had been confronted with this problem of a global economy in, in crisis and the response to that populism and war that resulted from it and they thought about it systemically and they thought about it hard and they came up with they said no we are going to restrain and restrict the interests of the owners of capital in the interests of democracy because they realized that there is a tension inherent between them and they said we're going to come down on the side of democracy and not in this on the side of the owners of, of money of wealthy and the powerful people and that debate is something we're not having at the moment and in places like Russia and Ukraine that that's already been the, the battle has been lost you know the wealthy have won but in Europe particularly the inequality isn't that bad so that debate is still worth having and I don't think we're having it at the moment and we should be. Moneyland is available pretty much everywhere the John Lanchester piece we mentioned is on the LRB website and we'll tweet the link to that We'll also tweet the link to an episode we did a while back with Harjun Chang, the economist, who's talking about tax in a somewhat different way. If you'd like to record a question for us, we would love to hear from you at our website. If you go to contact, you can find a really simple way to do that, and we will answer one next week. We're at talkingpoliticspodcast.com. And next week, we are going to get back to talking about Brexit. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. And if you do retake a sentence, it's better if you try and do it in the same voice. Does that make sense? So you don't say, <laughs> oh, sorry, and then start in like three octaves higher. You really can't <laughs> put on sound. a Yorkshire accent. Right? <laughs> you, can do that. you can always do a retake. Well, it's kind of advice that will then leave you kind of <laughs> flailing around trying to remember, what is my voice? <laughs> Where am I from this week? Hereford. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.